if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. People from other parts of the world might not know it or believe it, but the city of Detroit has a rich Catholic history. In fact, the oldest continuously operating Catholic church in the United States is not in Boston or New Orleans or San Diego. It's right in the heart of downtown Detroit. The word Detroit is French for the strait, as in the narrow portion of a body of water, because the French fur traders and missionaries who traveled up the St. Lawrence Seaway to the Great Lakes called the narrow stretch linking Lake Erie to Lake Huron Les Dutois du Lac des Herries, the Strait of Lake Erie. Now, on July 24, 1701, 25 canoes glided to a stop at the foot of a high bluff, which ran along a narrow part of the river that empties into that strait. The French explorer Antoine de la Mothe Cadillac and his party of 50 artisans, 50 soldiers, and two priests began construction of Fort Pontchartrain du Détroit. Among the first log structures that they put up was a tiny chapel, which they dedicated on July 26, the feast day of St. Anne, mother of Mary and grandmother of Jesus. And they called it the Church of St. Anne de Détroit, or the Church of St. Anne of Detroit. Now, although the log structure was long ago replaced with a beautiful stone building, that parish known as the Basilica of St. Anne de Detroit, is still operating today, 321 years later. Beginning with those French Catholic explorers and missionaries, Catholic immigrants from all around the world flock to this industrial center of the Great Lakes. And so, today, the number of fascinating and inspiring churches and shrines and holy sites in Detroit is one of the better-kept secrets of American Catholicism. We'll visit three of those sites on the field trip that I'll be leading to Detroit in March 2022 with the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization. And so, I wanted to give you just a little heads up about what we'll be seeing that day. The Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament, the National Shrine of the Little Flower, and the Solanus Casey Center. The Cathedral of the Most Blessed Sacrament is the Cathedral Church for the Archdiocese of Detroit. Now, let's take a moment and define just a couple of words, archdiocese and cathedral. In the Catholic Church, a diocese is the area governed by a bishop. We might think of it as a district or region of churches. The word has its roots in the latter days of the Roman Empire, when the government was organized into a number of regional divisions, so provinces, dioceses, metropolitan cities, etc. So when the Roman Empire became Christian, 
the authority and organization of the bishops was sort of merged into this system. A bishop governs a diocese, but a number of dioceses in a region are organized into an ecclesiastical province. And the biggest city in the region is designated as the Metropolitan Diocese or the Archdiocese of the province. So, there are six dioceses in the state of Michigan. The Diocese of Detroit is the Archdiocese. And so the Catholic churches in Michigan are all part of the ecclesiastical province of Detroit. And, as you can probably guess, while each of Michigan's dioceses is governed by a bishop, the bishop of the archdiocese is known as the archbishop. And the current archbishop of Detroit is the most reverend Alan Henry Vigneron. In Latin, the official language of the Catholic Church, the word cathedra means seat. And so, a cathedral is the church where a bishop has his seat, both figuratively and literally. Each diocese has only one church where the bishop or archbishop holds official liturgies, things like confirmations and ordinations. And administrative proceedings, the canonical courts and so forth, are located at the cathedral church. And his seat is literally in the cathedral because you can always tell a cathedral is a cathedral because there is a chair or a seat for the bishop up near the altar. And if you ever join me for a pilgrimage to Rome, we'll visit the Cathedral Church of Rome and see the Bishop of Rome's seat. Now, of course, the Bishop of Rome is the Pope. And when we think of the Pope, we think of St. Peter's Basilica. But St. Peter's is a basilica, not a cathedral. The Cathedral Church of Rome is St. John Lateran, about a mile or two away. When the Pope is acting in his capacity as the Pope, he does so from St. Peter's. But when he's acting as the bishop of the Archdiocese of Rome, he does so from his seat in St. John Lateran. Anyway, today we're visiting the Cathedral Church of the Archdiocese of Detroit. Make sure to look for the archbishop's chair, just off to the side of the altar. Now, the church we're visiting today wasn't always the Cathedral of Detroit. Remember St. Anne de Detroit? that first church that Cadillac and the French explorers built along the riverbank in 1701? Well, it took 132 years for Detroit to grow big enough to become a diocese. In 1833, its first church, St. Anne's, became its first cathedral. But cathedrals are important places, and they need to be large enough to support all the activities of the bishop and the diocesan ministries. And so, in 1848, another church, St. Peter's and Paul of Detroit, was consecrated as the new cathedral. And that lasted 30 years, until 1877, when the Jesuit order founded Detroit College, now the University of Detroit, and St. Peter and Paul was repurposed as part of the new campus. It's now the oldest church building in Detroit. So for the next 13 years, St. Aloysius became the temporary or interim cathedral. In 1890, St. Patrick's Church was elevated to cathedral status. But in 1905, Bishop Foley authorized construction of a new parish, the Church of the Most Blessed Sacrament, on some open land that at that time was outside the city limits. 
The architectural style was Norman Gothic or Neo-Gothic. Now, the easiest way to recognize Gothic architecture is the pointed arches. Gothic cathedrals seem to sweep or point upward, drawing our attention to heaven with stained glass windows in the side that flood the space with colored light. The architect was from Cleveland, and construction began in 1913. Using modern building techniques, the structure was completed in 1915, but the interior wasn't finished for 15 more years. After all, this was during World War I and the Depression. And so, the new Church of the Most Blessed Sacrament was dedicated on Thanksgiving Day in 1930. But it still wasn't the cathedral church for the diocese. In 1938, Detroit was elevated to archdiocese status. And by decree of Pope Pius XI, the Church of the Most Blessed Sacrament became the Cathedral of the Most Blessed Sacrament. In 1987, Pope John Paul II came to Detroit. When you're there, look for some memoirs that commemorate his visit. Now, like all the great church buildings, cathedrals especially, this one continues to architecturally evolve. For example, notice the modern lighting fixtures that were added much later. Now go ahead and ask the tour guide about them. Most people, honestly including me, think they look weird and out of place, like UFOs descending into the nave. But cathedrals are living spaces as new elements are added from generation to generation. And so, this cathedral is in the midst of a major update. They have obtained larger-than-life carved wooden statues of the Twelve Apostles and verified first-class relics of each apostle. They're being placed on large pedestals which will run down either side of the nave, similar to the design of St. John Lateran, that Cathedral Church of Rome. And in case you're wondering, first-class relics are actual physical remains of a saint, like a fragment of bone or a lock of hair. The cathedral currently has over 80 first-class relics of saints. And although the project won't be completed when we visit in March 2022, you'll want to come when these magnificent icons with relics of the apostles are finally consecrated. We'll get back to the episode in a few moments, but first I want to share with you an ancient principle of Catholicism. While we are saved by faith, true faith seeks understanding. Christ imparts to us a holy curiosity. We want to learn and grow and come to know more and more of God's word, his will, and his works. The Catholic life should be an ongoing journey of discovery. So, if you're enjoying the Considering Catholicism podcast, then join me and other instructors for the next step in this journey by joining the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization. Five years ago, we launched the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization, or LANE as we call it, to foster a culture of faith-filled, lifelong Catholic learning in hearts, homes, and parishes. As the Dean of LANE, I invite you to join me and its other teachers for a wide range of learning experiences for adults, 
as well as for children and families. Lane offers structured courses in Catholic topics, both online and in person, as well as seminars, audio and video documentaries, and field trips, both real and virtual. There are already dozens of courses in our library, with new programs being offered all the time. To check out the catalog and schedule, and to learn more about how it works, visit lanecatholic.org. That's L-A-N-E catholic.org, where faith seeks understanding. The National Shrine of the Little Flower in the Detroit suburb of Royal Oak is a fascinating place for all sorts of reasons. First, because of the saint it is dedicated to, St. Therese of Lisieux, known in Catholic culture as the Little Flower. Second, because of its magnificent and incredibly unique architecture and art, I really can't think of another Catholic church to compare it to. And third, because of the story of how it was built and who built it. Let's take a look at those three things. First, the little flower. St. Therese of Lisieux was a French religious sister, a nun, in Normandy, a region in the north of France. She was canonized in 1925, and in 1997, Pope John Paul II declared her a doctor of the church, recognized as one of the great teachers of the faith. In 2,000 years, there have only been 37 doctors of the church, only four of them women, and the little flower is one of them. Now, she was born in 1873, and she passed to glory in 1897. So if you're doing the math, yes, she only lived to be 24 years old, and she lived her entire religious life behind the walls of a cloistered convent. So you might be wondering, how could a 24-year-old locked away in a convent in northern France have had such an impact to become a doctor of the church? But wait, there's more. Because not only is she a saint, both of her parents, Louis and Zelay Martin, are also canonized saints, the only married couple ever to be canonized together. But as a bit of Catholic trivia, they're not the only married saints. Remember, Mary and Joseph are both saints, as are Mary's parents and the parents of John the Baptist. But it's remarkable that Therese of Lisieux's parents were canonized together. And the canonization case for Teresa's sister is proceeding as well, which means that the entire Martin family may well become the most saintly family in Catholic history. How is this possible? Well, it's a long story, of course, but here's the point of it. In her very short life, Therese exhibited a love for Christ that was inspiring and infectious. Her diary or memoir, titled The Story of a Soul and published after her death, described a passion that has become a model on how to live as a true disciple of Jesus. And her parents became a model for how to raise children in the Catholic faith. In the year 2000, St. Teresa's relics, her remains, were brought on a four-month tour throughout the United States. And they came to this shrine in Royal Oak, where 75,000 people visited them. When you visit today, look for some relics and mementos of St. Therese. 
and for displays about the tour of her relics in 2000. And speaking of relics, this basilica has an amazing collection of first and second class relics of the saints. The Adoration Chapel has dozens of them on display, as does the entrance to the visitor center, among them a relic of St. Therese herself. And there's a wonderful side chapel dedicated to her parents, St. Louis and Zell Martin, that commemorates, that commemorates their home in Normandy where they raised their daughters in the Catholic faith. Second, this shrine, or basilica, more about that in a moment, is a marvelous and unique treasure of Catholic architecture and art. It was built during the worst years of the Great Depression, completed in 1936. When you see the beauty and craftsmanship, you'll marvel that this was done during such hard times. It seems that no expense was spared to make it beautiful, and everything, down to the smallest detail, shares the gospel and tells the Catholic story faithful to scripture and tradition. The first thing you'll notice when you drive up is the remarkable Art Deco Tower with a massive figure of Christ crucified carved by an Italian stonemason. On the top, the four corners are symbols of the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Carved below Christ's feet are the seven last words he spoke from the cross. On the front are the four archangels, and just across from the tower is a carving of St. Therese of Lisieux, looking up to Jesus. The floor plan of the church is very unique because it is octagonal, and set into the sides of the octagon are octagonal openings into side chapels. There are side altars to the Blessed Virgin, to St. Joseph, to St. Sebastian, and to St. Perpetua. The tabernacle is in one of these octagonal side chapels. Now, over these side chapels are magnificent carvings of saints and angels and the stations of the cross, and even more side chapels off the main nave. Because the nave is octagonal, the seating is sort of in the round, and you'll notice what looks like a multicolored umbrella hanging from the ceiling. That umbrella, called a conopeum, or sometimes just an umbraculum, is a symbol designating a church as a minor basilica. The popes have the privilege of designating certain churches of outstanding beauty or cultural significance as minor basilicas. Currently, there are 89 minor basilicas in the United States. The National Shrine of the Little Flower was elevated to basilica status by Pope Francis in 2014. Finally, how and why was this remarkable church, dedicated to a French saint, built in Detroit during the worst years of the Great Depression? Well, in 1925, an Irish priest named Father Charles Coughlin established a new parish on this site. At that time, what is now Royal Oak was a strictly Protestant town, and the Ku Klux Klan operated in the area, keeping blacks and Catholics out. Within days of opening the parish, the clan lit a burning cross in front of the church. But Father Coughlin was not deterred. He defied the clan and proceeded to build a wooden church on the site. He was an interesting man. He had boundless energy, a deep love of Catholic tradition, an entrepreneurial spirit, 
and lots and lots of opinions about politics and world affairs. And so he used the new medium of radio to launch what might be the very first big-time Catholic media ministry in American history. On his show, he talked about the Depression, President Roosevelt, the storms brewing in Europe. And he framed it all in a populist narrative that he called social justice. His show became so popular that he was known around the country as simply the radio priest. And he used his popularity and his show to raise money to build a national shrine to the Little Flower, who had been canonized in 1925, the same year he started the parish. Now, Father Coughlin's popularity was not without problems. As the first Catholic media star in America, he raised money, but he was difficult for the bishops to control. And that became an issue, because as Father Coughlin railed on about domestic and international politics and politicians on the radio, he began straying from Catholic teaching. In particular, he not only began to criticize President Roosevelt and his policies, he also began to criticize Jews and praise some of the policies of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. The Catholic bishops in America were distressed and wanted to shut him down, but for whatever reason, the Archbishop of Detroit at the time refused to pull the plug on Father Coughlin's show. Eventually, the Roosevelt administration did it for him. They shut down his radio program by pulling his broadcasting permit, and the National Association of Broadcasters effectively canceled him. But Father Coughlin had launched his own newspaper with a wide national circulation, and he kept up his political commentary on its pages. The federal government stepped in again. President Roosevelt ordered the U.S. Attorney General to order the U.S. Postmaster to refuse to deliver Father Coughlin's newspaper. Finally, in 1942, after the United States entered the Second World War, the Archbishop of Detroit stepped in. He gave Father Coughlin an ultimatum. He would cease all his political activities. If he did so, he could remain as the pastor of the Shrine of the Little Flower. Father Coughlin complied and remained as the pastor until he retired in 1966. I love visiting this basilica for many reasons, but not the least is all the contrasts and paradoxes that it presents. I can't think of two people more different than St. Therese of Lisieux and Father Coughlin, yet the most enduring of his works is this shrine to her. And I can't think of an architectural style more weirdly at odds with the aesthetics of Normandy, France, than Art Deco. And yet, somehow it works. And I can't think of a more unlikely place for all of this to play out and to house an amazing collection of relics of the saints than on a boulevard in Royal Oak, Michigan. And yet, there it is. Every time I visit, I'm reminded of Catholicism's scope and diversity and the paradoxes that are woven through every page of its story. One of the best ways to learn more about Catholicism 
its beliefs and practices, saints and stories, heritage and culture, is to visit the places where the Catholic story actually unfolded with someone who can explain it, answer your questions, and help you apply it to your life, especially as a part of a group of pilgrims that are sharing and supporting and praying for each other as they discover together. That's why the ministry that produces this podcast, One Whirling Adventure, offers pilgrimage trips. I'll be your guide and teacher, unpacking Catholic faith, life, and heritage for you in some of Catholicism's most significant sites. If you'd like to join me for a pilgrimage to places like Italy, Ireland, Israel, or France, visit the website oneworlingadventure.org to see the dates and details of upcoming trips. That's oneworlingadventure.org and click on the travel tab at the top. Let's discover our Catholic faith and heritage together. Barney Casey was the sixth of 16 children born to Irish immigrants in Wisconsin in 1870. When he was 17, he left the farm to work a series of jobs around the Great Lakes. For a while, he was a lumberjack and then a hospital orderly and then a prison guard and finally a streetcar operator. And one night while he was driving the streetcar through a rowdy section of the city, he saw a brutal murder take place right in front of him. And that experience changed Barney and he decided to pursue the priesthood. So he enrolled in a seminary in Milwaukee, but academically he just didn't have the skills to become a diocesan priest. So his superiors advised him to enter a religious order where he could be ordained as something called a simplex priest, able to celebrate the Mass, but not necessarily to preach or hear confessions. One day, while he was praying before a statue of the Virgin Mary, Barney heard her tell him to go to Detroit. And so he obeyed. And when he arrived, he entered a branch of the Franciscan order called the Capuchins at a monastery near the industrial heart of the city. When he entered, he was given the religious name Solanus after a Spanish saint who shared his love for the violin. Once again, Solanus struggled with academics. But he was ordained a simplex priest, and he celebrated his first Mass in 1904. The Capuchins sent him to New York City, and for the next 20 years, Solanus served the poor near Penn Station and in Harlem. But in 1924, his order transferred him back to Detroit. And until 1945, Solanus Casey was the doorkeeper or the porter at the Franciscan Monastery in Detroit. At night, he would quietly kneel before the Eucharist in the chapel. And on Wednesday afternoons, he worked with the public. He became popular in the community, as his advice and his prayers often worked wonders in people's lives. And when the great industrial factories of Detroit slowed down during the Great Depression, Solanus helped start the Capuchin Soup Kitchen, which helped keep many people on their feet during hard times. Father Solanus Casey became a beloved figure in Detroit, a a model of Catholic devotion and love for the poor. He was a gentle, quiet, and lovely man who just read Christ's presence through the Depression and World War II. When he died in 1957 after a long illness, his last words were, I give my soul 
to Jesus Christ. All of Detroit wept. In fact, an estimated 20,000 people filed past his coffin prior to his funeral and burial in the cemetery of the Detroit Monastery. During his earthly life and after his death, a whole range of miraculous cures have been attributed to his intercession. Many people in Detroit have a story about a family member that Father Solanus prayed for and experienced a healing. And so, in 1976, the Vatican opened a case for beatification of Father Casey. In 1987, his remains were exhumed and found to be incorrupt. And so he was robed in a new habit and reinterred in the newly built Solanus Casey Center at his Detroit monastery. In 1995, Pope John Paul II, revealing the results of the Vatican investigation, declared that Father Casey had lived a life of heroic virtue and declared him venerable, a step on the process towards canonization. In 2017, Pope Francis declared him to be blessed, and his beatification mass took place at Ford Field in Detroit with 60,000 people in attendance. Blessed Solanus Casey, who lived out the social teachings of the church, is now one step short of canonization. The Solanus Casey Center is attached to the monastery where he lived and served. His remains are here, and the center does a remarkable job of telling his story and capturing the Capuchin spirit which he lived out so faithfully. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. Learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting oneworlingadventure.org.